Welcome to the Invictus Church Podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen, and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. Well, hate is a strong word, isn't it? But if we're honest, we all have a hate list, don't we? things that we just absolutely hate, right? I hate tomatoes. Now, I love everything made from tomatoes, but the taste of a raw tomato literally makes me gag. It's like the most horrible flavor God ever created. I'm glad he made tomatoes because I love ketchup. I even like tomato juice. How freaky is that? But you put a raw tomato in my mouth and you're going to see stuff that you don't want to see. So uh, that's one of those things I hate. You know what else I hate that lots and lots of people love? Coffee. And uh, some of you are like, oh my gosh, well that doesn't, I'm not condemning you for drinking coffee. I realize that many, many of you love coffee. I tried for a season in my life to love coffee because people say it's an acquired taste. And I'm like, if you have to work to like it, is it really worth it? And I worked really hard to try to like it, but no, it's, it's, not, it, it's not very good. Now here's my logical argument for why coffee is horrible. Now, you may think it tastes good, but maybe after you listen to my logic here, you'll agree with me that it's terrible, all right? The most expensive coffee in the world, in other words, the coffee in the world that tastes the best, all right, the best coffee you've ever had in your life is called Kopi Luwak coffee, and it is made from the feces of the civet. A civet is a cat monkey, Basically, it's like a combination of a cat and a monkey, and the civets eat these uh, coffee cherries and then partially digest the coffee bean and poop it out, and then people pick that out of the dookie and make coffee out of it and sell it for like 80 bucks a pound. And coffee lovers go, oh, it's glorious. Now, here's my argument. If you have to take something and pass it through the rectum of an animal to make it taste better, it was not good to start with. It's awful. I hate coffee. Who came up with that? I mean, who's crawling through the Indonesian jungle one day, puts their hand in that and goes, smells like coffee. Think I ought to taste this. What in the world were they thinking? Who comes up with that business plan? And, you know, what's your, what's your slogan? Civet coffee. Now, that's some good stuff. All right? I mean, just not touching it, not going anywhere close. You know what else I hate? Awkward conversations in public bathrooms. Right? I'm standing there, minding my own business, and uh, this guy comes up next to me. And he's like, so how you doing? I'm okay, I guess. It's not having a very good day, huh? Really? No, I've had better ones. Why don't you let me buy you a a cup of of coffee later? No, thanks. I hate coffee. So Starbucks at two? What? And then the guy turns around and I see a Bluetooth thing in his ear and he's talking to somebody on the phone. I'm feeling like an idiot. He's looking at me like, why are you talking to me in the bathroom? Awkward conversations in the bathroom. Hate those things, right? There are things that we hate. Um, 
And today we're looking at some of the words of Jesus where he, he tells us, there's some things that ought to be on your hate list. And that's kind of a weird thing to say. It, it, it makes people stop and ask, say what? What did you just say, Jesus? That is weird stuff. Now, before we read today's text, which is going to be in Luke chapter 14, I encourage you to turn your Bibles there to Luke 14. We're going to read there in just a moment. Um, Before we read that, let's review the guiding principle of this series. We talked about it last week. We repeated it last week, and we're going to repeat it again today. And by the time this series is over with, you're going to remember this statement. And it is this. Every time Scripture makes you think, say what? It's to teach you something powerful and life-changing. So everybody say it with me. I'm going to start the statement, and you're going to finish it. Every time Scripture makes me think, say what? All right, let's try that again because the caffeine still hasn't kicked in. By the way, we bought civet coffee for you this morning. I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, "Ah, clean my tongue. Gross. No, we're way too cheap for that. All right, so anyway, every time Scripture makes me think, say what? It's to teach me something powerful and life-changing. So with that in mind, let's read Luke 14, uh, starting in verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and your mother and your wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or, what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 people could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, He will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Now, to understand this passage, we need to understand the essence of the gospel. And we talk about the gospel a lot in this church because it is the foundational subject of Christianity. This is the basis of everything we believe and what we build our lives upon. What is the essence of the gospel? It's this. God made us to have a perfect relationship with him. But we sinned. We messed up that perfect relationship. Anybody here ever made a mistake? Yeah, we are all sinners. The Bible says all have sinned. And the consequences of our sin is this. It's eternal consequences. It's hell. The consequences of our sin separate us from God, not just in this life, but in the next life. And there's no going back then. The wages of sin is death, Scripture tells us. And the only way for this relationship with God to be fixed, to be restored, (coughs) pardon me, is for someone innocent to suffer the penalty on our behalf. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
The problem is, they looked all the world, if you look all the world over, there was no one innocent. The Old Testament says there are none who are righteous, no, not one. So God loved us so much, he said, I'm going to solve this problem. There's nobody innocent to pay the penalty for everyone else. I will become man. God put on skin in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, and he came to earth and he laid down his life for us. Now, before laying down his life for us, Jesus did something astonishing. He lived a perfect life. He always picked up his toys when mom said to. He always made it home on time for curfew. He always did the dishes. Can you imagine being his brothers and sisters? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Totally unfair, mom. He's God. I mean, when Jesus stubbed his toe in the middle of the night, and I think he probably did because the Bible says that he faced every single temptation we've ever faced. Now, some people are like, I don't think Jesus ever got sick. I don't think he ever stubbed his toe. He was God. He was also fully human, and he faced every temptation we were ever faced. Have you ever faced the temptation of wanting to murder your children when you were feeling sick and they were bugging you? Have you ever faced the temptation of saying, beep, when you stubbed your toe in the middle of the night? <clears throat> yeah, we've all faced those things. So I think Jesus probably got a cold and had diarrhea and felt crummy and had to put up with people when he didn't feel good and all of those kinds of things. Jesus was a total human, 100% human and 100% God. He was as much man as if he was not God at all, and he was as much God as if he was not man at all. This is a total mystery to us that we don't completely understand, but we know that in the person of Jesus Christ, this was true. He was God, and he was man, and he lived the only perfect life on earth that anyone who, of anyone who's ever lived, the only one. And Jesus, then, at the end of his life, suffered a horrible criminal's death on a cross. The most brutal death that the Roman executioners could have imagined at that point was to crucify someone, and Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross. All of the sins of mankind were put on Jesus, and in that moment, Jesus, who had never been separated from the Father, was so ugly and awful to look at that God turned his back on him. Couldn't even look at him. He was all the sin of all men of all time. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he uttered another prayer. He said, God, into your hands I commend commit my spirit, and he gave up and died. He was the perfect lamb of God. We call him the lamb of God because lambs were used, spotless lambs, for sacrifice. And Jesus was the spotless lamb of God who laid down his life for you and for me. He paid the penalty for all people. Now, that means forgiveness for our sin that cuts us off from God is available. It does not mean that it's automatic. A lot of people think, well, Jesus died for everybody, so everybody's going to heaven. That's not the way it works. You have to accept it. You have to accept the gift. If I tell you, I want to give you my car, 
A lot of you will say, it's a minivan, don't want it. <laughs> but some of you who are smart, you say, I could sell it on Craigslist for a couple bucks. Yeah, I'll take your minivan. It's available, but it's not automatic. I mean, it's an automatic transmission, yes. But the gift is not automatic, right? Not until what? You take the keys. You have to receive the gift in order to have the gift. It doesn't apply to you until you grab it and take it. Now, how do we do that? The Bible says that we do that by faith. We accept it by faith. And that word that we translate faith is sometimes a mysterious word in the Bible because the most famous verse of Scripture talking about the sacrifice of God is John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him... If you've got that verse, underline it. Underline the word believes because that English word believes is a pathetic, weak word. It does not describe what was actually said there in the original language. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That word believes in Greek is the word pistuo, and we do not have an English word for pistuo. It's a verb form of faith. The best translation might read, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever faiths in him would have everlasting life. Whoever faiths in him. Now, that's bad English. It doesn't work in English. So we, we weaken it because of English grammar and we make it believes. Now, believing something. I can believe that somebody wants to give me their car, but I have not taken a step of faith until I take the gift. It's not enough to intellectually assent and know that somebody's wanting to give something away. I believe it. Check. It's a whole other thing to, by faith, grab a hold of it and take it. So what does that word faith mean? Pistis, faith, pistuo, faithing, or faiths. What do those words mean? It means an absolute level of trust that goes so far beyond believing that believing is pathetic in comparison. It means this, I trust God so much that I accept his gift. I trust that he's going to save me for all eternity. Do I have a contract saying that it's going to happen? No. But... I take on faith. I trust and believe absolutely that he is going to save me. I also believe other things. Because to put my pistuo in him, to faith in him, means I don't just trust him with the next life. I trust him with this one. God, I give you me. I trust that your way to live is better than my way to live. Now think about the implications of that. Many times in the church I grew up in, they would talk about accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And the reason that they used that language and that Christians have used that language for millennia is because that's what real pistuo, facing, is. It means accepting the gift of salvation and eternal life 
It also means accepting the gift of God guiding you every single day and saying, I give up the steering wheel, Lord. My life is yours. That's the essence of the gospel. Now, here's what's scary. There are lots of people who've never given up the steering wheel, but they think they're going to heaven. They raise their hand on a Sunday. They walk down an aisle. They checked the box on a card and dropped it in an offering plate. They prayed a prayer. I accepted the gift, but the faith step to actually take the key is to say, Lord, here's my everything. You see the exchange, the covenant in the New Testament between God and man, the new covenant in Christ's blood is this. God, you give me my life. You give me life, and I give you my life. That's the exchange that takes place. In other words, if Jesus is not your Lord, I got frightening news for you. He's not your Savior. This is why Scripture says those scary words. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, didn't I do good works in your name? Didn't I heal people in your name? Didn't I give money in your name and help the poor in your name and do all this wonderful stuff? And I will say to them on that day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. There are many, many people who think they're saved, but they're not. That's a little unnerving. Now, what does all that have to do with Jesus saying, hate your mother and father? It's real simple. And Jesus is saying, to be my disciple, you got to make me Lord. You got to give me everything. I want you to write this down. <clears throat> when Jesus is truly Lord, there is no other competition. When Jesus is truly your Lord, there is no other competition. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He uses the word hate figuratively. It's a figurative term. It's called hyperbole. It's exaggerating something. Uh, it's a device to evoke strong feelings and to make an impression. And so when Jesus says, I want you to hate your mother and father, that gets your attention, right? Remember, every time the Bible makes me think, say what? It's to teach me something powerful and life-changing. Jesus is saying this hyperbolic kind of hate in order to grab our attention and make us tune in and say, okay, what exactly is he saying? I love the New Living Translation that I read this morning because it says, I want you to hate by comparison, Hate by comparison. Maybe the translation that you have uh, simply says, hate your mother and father. Um, whatever the case, it's, it's evocative language. Now, we talked earlier about our hate lists, but you know, we all also have a love list, don't we? The things in our life that we love. Now, I want you to stop for just a minute and think, and I want you to write down five things that you love, but I want you to leave God off the list. You can't put God or Jesus. This is not Sunday school, so you can't give the Sunday school answer right now, all right? You, you got to hold on. No God or Jesus on your list. Five other things that you love. Write them down for just a second. You, they don't have to necessarily be in order yet, but they will be in a moment, all right? We're going to sort these things out here in just a second, but this is a really good exercise for you. Now, I've, I've got a love list here, and there are more things on my love list than just these five, but I'm starting with five just as an example. So here are my five. Family, friends. Star Wars, 
Dallas Cowboys football and naps. I love naps, right? Now, let me ask you, do I love my family the same way that I love naps? No. I love naps way more. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We love our, you know, so love is a spectrum, right? Love is a spectrum. You might put on there, I love Big Macs. Or you might put, I love Civet Coffee, and I'm going to pray for you. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can put on there. Maybe the thing that you love is something that's sinful. Maybe it's porn or getting drunk or drugs or gossip, if you're honest. Ooh, I love those things. Maybe some of your five seem seemingly harmless, but they could become bad, like flirting at work. It doesn't seem like that big a deal. Looking at the gym, you know what I mean. Looking, right? Money. Jesus says the money is the root of all kinds of evil. Stuff, more things, or a TV show. Maybe it's not intrinsically bad in and of itself, but it could be something bad if it became the most important thing on your love list. Now, I want you to put them on a scale of 1 to 10. You can do this in your head, or you can draw it on a piece of paper, but... Number one would be the least important thing on your love list. So number one for me is naps. That's on my scale of one to 10 at a one. And 10 on this list would be my family. Pretty big gap. Now I'm gonna put the other things on that spectrum where I think they go. And for me, uh, Dallas Cowboys football would be the second one. That's, that's down around less than a two. It's more than a one, but less than a two. Star Wars, I love a lot more. It's not quite a three. Now, it doesn't quite make three. It's less than three, but more than two. And then friends, it's a big leap. It jumps up to six. I love my friends, but I don't love them like I love my family. If you're my friend, I hope that doesn't offend you. I hope it makes you confident that, hey, this guy's priorities are pretty good. Because my family on that list is 10. So there's some, there's some gaps there, and some of them are pretty huge. Here's family, and then friends, and then Star Wars Cowboys Naps. Now, there's this big spectrum there. Now, I want you to add another 10 past the number one thing on your list. So now your, list, your, your spectrum goes up to 20, and I want you to put Jesus at 20. God, Jesus, I love most. See, here's what Jesus is trying to convey when he's saying in this thing about hate your mother, your father, yes, even your own life. He's saying the gap between those other things that you love, the other thing in the world you love most, the gap ought to be the same between me and that as that and the least thing on your love list. You gotta love me so far out front that by comparison, the other things seem lame. Now, on a scale of one to 20, a 10 is what? It's half. If you get half credit for something in school, what grade do you get? An F. So Jesus is saying, compared to me, everything else you love is an F. Then, and only then, are you my disciple. Now, if we really created our lists, where would Jesus be on them? 
Maybe he's a seven and family's a ten. Maybe work's a ten. You love Jesus enough to come to church every week, but you love money enough to go to work every day. You love Jesus enough to read your Bible every now and then, but you love your friends enough to call them, to text them, to Facebook them, Instagram them, Snapchat them 52 times a minute. Who do you really love most? Convicting, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying, if I am not Lord, you're not my disciple. You may like a lot of stuff about me, and you may love the idea of getting heaven insurance when you die. But I'm not here to sell heaven insurance. I'm here to change you forever. And forever starts now. Right? Now. If I truly make Jesus my Lord, there's no other competition Second thing I want you to write down that I take away from this passage is that when Jesus is truly Lord, there is nothing that you won't give up for him. Jesus says in this passage, carry your cross. I talked about this last week. What a horrific image that was to the people of that culture. That's like saying to us, take up your electric chair daily and follow me. Count the cost. Don't say, yeah, I want to become a Christian. I want to go to heaven when I die and make some easy, lame commitment because this isn't an easy, lame commitment. He says, if you want to say yes to me, you say yes to all of me or you say yes to none of me. Give me every square inch of your life. All of it. Count the cost. He says, you can't be my disciple, without giving up everything you own. Does that mean you literally have to sell everything or give it all to Salvation Army in order to be a follower of Jesus? No. There were wealthy people that followed Jesus who were his friends, that, but they understood the principle, the money, the stuff, the, the gadgets in my life. These are not God. My house, my car, my status. These are not Lord Jesus is my Lord. Everything I have is here to serve him. Does Jesus have your pocketbook? I think the greatest and most telling indicator about whether or not Jesus is someone's Lord is to look at their budget. And what's the first thing that money goes to every time they get paid? That's your Lord. The first thing that money needs to go to is Jesus. Every time we learn about tithing and we learn about giving in the Bible, it is always in this context. Give God 
the first and the best. And he will take care of the rest. That principle is seen throughout Scripture. You say, Alan, you are meddling today, man. You are screwing with my whole world right now. Church, you're welcome. We need to have our world messed up and turned upside down because we need to be real, devoted followers of Jesus. The call to follow Jesus ain't no easy life. It is a life of sacrifice. It is a life of giving hard and digging deep and giving him everything. Why? Because he's worth it. The happiest, miserable people on the planet are people who have really given Jesus everything. They're miserable because it's hard. You don't get to do with your stuff what everybody else gets to do. Everybody else gets to spend their money on whatever they want. But no, for me, the Lord comes first. Everybody else gets to spend their time however they want. But no, for me, the Lord comes first. Everybody else can do with their family whatever they want. No, but for me, the Lord comes first. Everybody else can watch whatever they want. But for me, the Lord comes first. That adds a lot of stress. Everybody else can do whatever they want sexually. But for me, no, the Lord comes first. Everybody else can make whatever decision they want. They can vote however they want. They can say, feel the burn, make America great again. Look at the follower of Jesus. Jesus comes first. That's not easy. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Because who has the responsibility for my life? If I make people mad by how I vote, what do I care? I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do. If they don't like me obeying Jesus, who cares? unless their opinion of me is higher on my love list than Jesus is. And if that's the case, then Jesus isn't my Savior because he wasn't really my Lord. The opinion of other people was my Lord. Lord, take it all. Why am I happy even though life is hard as a follower of Jesus? Because all the onus, all the responsibility is on him. The guy who created the world is the one who's responsible for my life and who promises to take care of me. Wow. So I can give to Jesus first, and I don't have to worry about where the rest of the money is going to come from. I can't pay my bills with 100% of what I'm bring it in. And you want me to take some off the top and give it to God, Alan? Let me just say this. You, you start tithing. You give God 10% and he will do more with 90% than you ever could do with 100%. When he's Lord of all, 
He takes care of all your needs. If you're worried about what people are going to think about you, whose opinion matters most, theirs or God's? Who do you love more, them or God? Lord, your opinion matters to me more. Rick Warren, one of my favorite pastors here in the United States, has been on television for many, many interviews. He, he wrote a book back in about 2001, 2002 um, called The Purpose Driven Life. It went nuts, sold millions and millions of copies. And uh, people, I mean, just all of a sudden he became this church celebrity. And he stands up on television in interviews, like with Dateline and whatnot, and they ask him, what do you believe about homosexuality? And he answers with the biblical answer, it's sin. Well, aren't you afraid that you're going to make people mad by saying things like that? And he said in an interview, I am more concerned with what the Lord thinks about me than what men think about me. And I about jumped up for the first time in my life while watching Dateline and shouted, amen. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. When I was 19 years old, I had a crisis of faith regarding Star Wars. I know, it sounds big, doesn't it? But it is on my love list. I grew up in a church world that was kind of legalistic, and one of my mentors felt like Star Wars was really evil and dark because it was preaching the force rather than preaching Jesus. And, and you know, as the goofy science nerd, I'm scientific, sci-fi nerd, I'm saying it's in a galaxy far, far away. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't go there. He came to Earth. How would they even know who Jesus is? Why, why is this awful? Why is this bad? And, and this mentor who I had great respect for was like, Alan, you, you need to give up Star Wars for Jesus. The only thing wrong with you right now is, man, Star Wars. That's a pretty hard thing to hear. I had just spent two years of my life during what I call the dark times when Kenner was no longer making Star Wars toys and Hasbro, Hasbro had not yet acquired the Kenner company and was again making them. And so this was in the, the late 80s, early 90s when there weren't no Star Wars to buy at the store. And so the only way you could collect the stuff was by living in Salvation Army stores and Goodwill stores and garage sales and flea markets and hunting for the stuff the hard way. And I, for two years, I had spent all kinds of crazy amounts of time and money completing my loose set of original Kenner Star Wars action figures. I have all of them, except at that time I was missing two. The only two that I couldn't find, one was only sold in Canada and Europe called Yak Face, and the other one you could have only ordered through the Sears catalog. It was a variant of another figure. It was a blue snaggletooth wearing silver boots. I know you don't care about that stuff, but I'm telling you anyway. Now, here's why this is important. I spent all this time and energy just getting all this stuff, and it's worth money, and this guy is telling me I need to give that up for Jesus, and I'm like... If I really love Jesus, do I have to give this up? And I was struggling and I prayed and was like, Lord, what do I do? do? Do you really want me to give up my Star Wars stuff? And it was almost like I could hear God talking. Here's what I heard. Did Star Wars give its life for you? No. Does Star Wars love you like I love you? I'm pretty sure Star Wars doesn't love me at all. Would you 
give up Star Wars for me without a hesitation, Lord. I would. And he said, that's all I needed to know. Now go find Yak Face and Snaggletooth. See, it's okay to have other things on your love list, but they can't be more important than him. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Loving Jesus doesn't mean you won't have other relationships or other things that you enjoy. It means you are willing to give them up if he asks you to. Now let me tell you this. Jesus will never ask you to do something that is a sin. If you hear that, that is the voice of Satan, not of Jesus. Jesus is never going to ask you to do something that contradicts the Bible. There are lots of people that I've met over the years who are like, I divorced my wife because I felt like the Lord was telling me to. That was not the Lord. The Lord wants me to be happy. No, there's not a verse in the Bible that says, don't worry, be happy. That's a really dumb song. The Lord wants you. If he's not the defining number on your love scale today, why not? Today's the perfect day to make your priorities right. Make Jesus the thing on your love list that everything else no longer even compares to. Give him everything. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church podcast. Be sure to tune in every week for more new content. We'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services. To get more information about our meeting times and location, please visit us online at www.invictus.church. If this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at invictus.church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.invictus.church. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.